Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word, that it is alive, that it makes a difference, that we have the opportunity to communicate with you. We ask now that you help us to listen carefully as you communicate with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Family Worship Sunday. You may hear a few extra noises in this service. That's a good thing. We welcome those of you who are younger and are not normally with us. We welcome you, those of you that are Sunday school teachers or workers in the ministries at different areas, and you're not normally with us. We're glad that you're here. That's going to lead into my first question. What is your favorite family vacation? What memories do you have of your favorite family vacation? What do you remember? Perhaps you remember the destination, the place you went, or the sights that you saw, or perhaps you remember the people that you were with, or you went to a concert or an event, or perhaps you remember the journey itself. My family lived in central Pennsylvania, and my parents uh, took major 10 to two, 10 day to two week trips and we would pile into the car and we would take family vacations. We went up into New England one time, we went down into Florida one time, we went over to Texas one time, and we went up to uh, Wisconsin many times. And so by the time I was in high school, I had been to every state east of the Mississippi. And sometimes we traveled just with our family in a car and boy do I have memories of what happened in the car. And sometimes we went with other people and that created even more memories. Our text today reminds me of such times. Our text today was Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is in a group of psalms called Songs of Ascent. If you look in your Bible, every psalm from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, that's 15 psalms, it'll say right underneath the number at the top, it'll say Song of Ascents. These were used by pilgrims as they were traveling up to Jerusalem. They were ascending to Jerusalem, and so they would use these particular psalms or songs. And you could be traveling to Jerusalem at any time, and you would, de- you would use these songs of ascent, but specifically they were used during the celebrations of feasts. You could go to this feast of Passover. You could go to the feast of Pentecost. You could go to the feast of tabernacles or Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, the new year, the Jewish new year. Or you could go to Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And these were the five main feasts and the family would travel to Jerusalem. Now sometimes just the head of the family would go and he would offer sacrifices for the family. But sometimes the whole family went and made a a vacation out of it. And sometimes a number of families would get together and form clans. And you could imagine if the Smiths and the Joneses live in Nazareth and they're going to go to Jerusalem for the festival and the word gets out, pretty soon a number of families join them and you could have 10 or 12 families traveling together for safety and for convenience and fun. Luke chapter 2 tells us of one such story when Jesus was 12. And remember, his family went to Jerusalem during Passover. Now, from Nazareth to Jerusalem, if you walked hard, it was a three-day trip. 
And those trips would be great fun, but you'll remember that on the way back, uh, they thought Jesus was with some friends or some other families, and he was, and he was back in the temple talking to the Jewish leaders, and so there was a problem. But as these groups were traveling along, they'd use these 15 psalms, and they'd quote them, and they'd study them, and they'd pass them on, and they'd discuss them. Now, it was hard trip, so you'd walk all day, and you'd walk hard, and then at night, you would camp. And as you were camping, there would be eating, and maybe dancing, and maybe the learning of more psalms. And these were family vacations with a purpose, if you will. Now, all these psalms were different. These were psalms about oppression, about protection, about the land, about the city of Jerusalem, about God's mercy, about captivity, about forgiveness, and on and on. Each psalm was different. Psalm 127 is the central psalm of the Psalms of Ascent. Structure is important in Hebrew poetry, and so some people think that Psalm 127 is the most important. And I thank Casey or Case and Lorelai for reading those psalms, that reading that psalm for us. That psalm is divided into two easily identifiable parts. The first two verses and then the last three verses. So let's look together at them. It starts out, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So you've been walking all day, you're heading to Jerusalem, and now you're sitting around the fire, and this time a rabbi happened to be traveling with you, so he's teaching. And he reads, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, and he asks, what house is the psalmist referring to? Well, it could be your home. But as you think about it, you're heading to Jerusalem, and the house in Jerusalem was God's house, the temple. Yes, the house of God, that's where you're going. And of the 15 songs of ascent, this was the only one that was written by Solomon. And who better than Solomon to tell us about the temple? After all, Solomon built the temple. Took him 13 years to build the temple. It was considered one of his greatest accomplishments. In 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, we read about the building itself of the temple. Chapter 6, verse 11, we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my words with you which I spoke to David your father and I will dwell among the children of Israel and not forsake my people. And as you're sitting around the fire and that verse gets read, you go, hey, he's talking about us. I'm the children of Israel. I'm considered not forsaken here. In 1 Kings 8 and 9, he talks about the dedication and the worship of the temple. And it becomes obvious as we look at the temple that even though Solomon built the temple, it was God's house. It was God's temple. So you sort of smile to yourself and you say, okay, now I know the first part of the first verse. At least I think I do. And the rabbi moves on and he goes to the second part. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. And he says to you, what city? But you're smart now. You know this is easy. Well, the city's Jerusalem. That's where I'm headed. And who better to talk about the security of the city of Jerusalem than Solomon? Because for 40 years, Solomon had been the king. 
and had reigned in Jerusalem. And for 40 years, he had every dignitary and every official leader and every ruler from other countries come and visit him. And never once in 40 years was the city of Jerusalem threatened militarily while Solomon was the king. Near the end of his life, there were some internal threats, but it would be wise to listen to Solomon about the security of a city. But as you're sitting around that fire, something doesn't quite sit right with you. It's the phrase, in vain. How could it be in vain? How would building a house or building the temple be, how could it possibly be in vain? Well, it might be in vain if it were poor workmanship, if the house were falling down or if the temple were not there, but the temple is still standing. Well, it could be in vain if if no one really wanted that house or they didn't, nobody wanted to, to go there. But the fact is, everybody still went to the temple regularly. I think it's more likely that the house and the building of the house would potentially be in vain if the house lost its significance. Is it possible that this temple had just become an excuse for a vacation? After all, if you leave God out of the temple, it's just a pretty structure. And when would the guarding of a city be in vain? Well, perhaps if the city of Jerusalem were overrun militarily, that would have been in vain, but that hadn't happened. Or maybe if there was nothing in the city worth guarding, but no one would have agreed with that because of the great structures and the riches in the city, it's more likely that the guarding of the city would be in vain if God wasn't there. Because without God, Jerusalem was just a shell. It was irrelevant. Now the psalmist doesn't say for sure, but whatever, it would be a sad situation. And if you're at all like me, you hate to do things in vain. Notice in this passage, Solomon doesn't say you need to do this and this and this and this and this or it will be in vain. Rather, he lists just one condition. If you fail to do one thing, it will be in vain. If you build without God, it will be in vain. If you guard and watch without God, it will be in vain. God needed to be involved. He needed to be recognized. And apparently, that was not always the case. Second verse. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The point of this verse is that you work hard for your food, but it's in vain. You rise up early, but it's in vain. You go to sleep late, but in vain. You're always anxious. You're always worried. Solomon's point is if we give no thought for God, all that we do is vain. If you're here this morning and God is outside your equation, you are doomed to failure. All that you do will be in vain. If, on the other hand, God is present and he is involved and he is the most important thing in your equation, then it says your house is strong, your city is secure and protected, and you can sleep soundly. And all this makes sense to you as you sit around the fire on your way to Jerusalem. But then we come to the second half of the psalm. 
Now some have argued that these two parts of Psalm 127 are so different that in fact they're two separate psalms and someone mistakenly put them together. I think they're missing something and I'll explain it shortly. Verses 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And quickly you can see why some say these are two separate psalms. The first two verses talk about houses and cities. Verses 3 through 5 talk about family. But here's where biblical languages help us. The Old Testament, including the book of Psalms, was written in the language of Hebrew. And if you look at verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, the word there in Hebrew for house And then go to verse 3. Behold, children, which is the Hebrew word for sons. Behold, sons are a heritage from the Lord. That word, the word house and the word sons, in Hebrew are identical except for one vowel point. All the consonants are exactly the same. All the vowels are the same except for one. As you say these two words, they sound almost exactly alike. Solomon, when he wrote this psalm, is using a play on words. And in our English, we may miss it. But I guarantee you the people traveling to Jerusalem would not have missed it. And so as the reader reads verse 3, the Jewish person sitting around the fire would go, hmm... My family, my children, they're like the house in verse 1. And so my family must be compared to the city. And so we would rightfully conclude that unless God builds my family, I do it in vain. Unless God guards my family, I do it in vain. Unless God is central, all is vain. And I'll just end up worrying and not sleeping well. And this makes sense. And it helps us understand how all five of these verses fit together. This is so much more than just a psalm about the temple in Jerusalem. And it's not two psalms. It's one psalm, and the emphasis of this psalm is family. So let's look more closely at the last three verses. Verses 1 and 2 warn us of a negative to avoid. That is, avoid building a family without God. Verses 3 and 5 state the principle more positively. And here is an important statement. Children, which is the proper understanding of the word sons. They're not just talking about male children. Children are a heritage. Children are a reward. Children are a gift from the Lord. And many of us here should, in fact, say amen, or all of us should say amen to that. Children are a heritage, a reward, or a gift from the Lord. That's basic but we often forget it. Let us remember it always. Will having and raising children be hard? Will having and raising children be a lot of work? Yes. Will having and raising children involve long periods of sacrifice? Absolutely. Will having and raising children include frustration and pain sometimes beyond what we think is possible? No doubt. Will having and raising children 
come with a high probability that the day will come when you will not be appreciated and thanked. Yes. And still, the psalmist is accurate. Children are a gift, a heritage, a reward from the Lord. And we're reminded of that as we sit around this fire. And then Solomon gives us this well-known illustration. We all seem to remember it. Children are like arrows in a warrior's hand. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. Now, I've heard sermons about this passage, and it says we should all have more kids so that our quivers are full. Now, I'm all for having children, but is the point really that we all have more so our quivers are full? I've also heard a sermon saying the Jewish quiver held five arrows, so five is the perfect number of children. Well, Mark might agree, and Tom, you and Amy might agree, but most of us, I I really just don't think that's what this passage is saying. Instead, I would like to make two points based on this word, this biblical word picture. Children are like arrows in the warrior's hand. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. I'm going to be like Daryl. On the screen, you see uh, Yanomami Warrior. My wife and I were privileged to be able to live in the Yanomami for two weeks on our first sabbatical. This is a Yanomami bow. The Yanomami man is about five foot to five foot two. I'm five nine. This bow is a foot taller than the Yanomami warrior would be. Um, It is now dry. It hasn't been fired in about 20 years. That's the bow. This is the arrow. It's not a spear. This is the quiver. In 1996, I had been to the Atlanta Olympics, and in 1997, I was with the Yanomami, and a chief traded me an Olympics T-shirt for this quiver. Somewhere around Brazil is it? Yanomami with an Olympic shirt. (laughs) And in this quiver, they keep the different kind of arrow tips. A barbed one in case they're going for fish. One that has, the poison's gone, but the poison dart frog poison on it to uh, kill an animal slowly when the arrow breaks off. Or the big wide tips. Children of any age are welcome to come up afterwards and look at this. In the picture, you'll see on his, hand, his uh, left hand, he has one arrow in the bow and two arrows in his hand. Most of the time, they would just travel with one arrow. And as they saw what they were hunting, they would change the arrow tips very quickly. This arrow is beautiful. This quiver is actually really neat. I've used the arrow for uh, helping 
Public school classes learn a lot about Yanomami culture in the middle of Brazil. Um, it's a fun thing to, to walk into class with and people notice it. But you know what? This arrow has never accomplished what it was built for. This quiver, if I put it on my cabinet or hang it on a wall, it's a great piece for conversation. But it's never accomplished what it was intended for. Arrows were intended to be a tool for battle. Arrows in the hands of a warrior. So my first point in this word picture illustration is this. Arrows do no good unless they are released. If an arrow is never released, it is in vain. And it's the same with children. Hear me here. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers. Is it important to protect our children? Yes, absolutely. But to protect your children is not enough. It is, imp is, is it important to train your children so that you can be proud of them and show them off and display them? Yeah, that's fine, but it's not enough. It is not enough to practice with your children. It is not enough to teach your children. It is not enough to value your children. It is not enough to advise your children. It is not enough to encourage your children. You fill in the word. All this is in vain unless you release them. Little by little at first. Once I was trying to make this illustra illustration to a man and I said, your kids are like arrows. They're only good when they're shot. <laughs> that didn't come out quite right. But the temptation is very real today that we protect our children and we go before them and prepare the way for them and let's be honest, in this world today, it's tough and it's difficult to release my kids and my grandkids or the kids in my Sunday school class or the kids in my boys' brigade group into that scary world. To release children requires so much faith. Many of us, if we're honest, are better at protecting them, <laughs> training them, proudly showing them off. I need to ask you a question. How big is your God? Second point from the arrow illustration is this. The flight of an arrow can only be directly influenced while it is in your hands. Let me say that again. The flight of the arrow can only be directly influenced while it is in your hands. You see, I can groom the arrow and I can fix the fletching, and I can smooth and straighten it out, and that's good. 
I can set how much strength I need to pull back the bow, how many pounds are required. I can control the speed that I release the arrow. I control the intended distance of the arrow. But once I release the arrow, I cannot control the arrow or its flight. Similarly, with children... Once they're released, we can no longer control them. Once they are released, it's in God's control. And so what we need to do is while that arrow is in our hands, we need to take special care. First thing, we need to be purposeful. That is, we need to have a target in mind if our children are arrows And I'm not just saying any target. I'm saying we need to have an adequate target, a worthy target, an eternal target. Some of us have as the goal for our children that we have a good relationship with our kids or that they become successful in society or that they have a healthy self-image or get into a certain college. There's nothing wrong with any of those targets, but they're all inadequate Our number one purpose, our number one target in mind is that our children become lovers and followers of Jesus. And I think of the money and the time and the effort we spend on helping our children become well-rounded individuals and successful and healthy self-image. And then I think about how little we spend sometimes on helping them fall in love with Jesus. Too often we think, well, that's where my church comes in. That's what they do. Parents, grandparents, family members have the right target in mind. Secondly, be intentional. Be intentional in the time that you have with them. Have that target in mind and I'll point them to it and train them in that way and counsel them Direct them. Parents, take responsibility for your children. Yes, it's going to involve sacrifice. Yes, it's going to involve, involve, involve time. But build the relationship and listen and advise. Don't just give them a home. Point them to Jesus. And finally, in the end, let them go. Or at least begin to. And so we have to be purposeful and we have to be intentional, but when we release them, we also have to be trusting. Here's that question again. How big is your God? We all know that once our children are released, we can still have influence. We can pray for them, and prayer is not something that we should wait until they're released to start. We should be praying earlier. But when we do release them, we need to allow them to stand for themselves unless we want to raise a generation of dependent children. Out of order. When that's done, when your children are viewed as rewards and blessings from God and they're released to serve him and love him then the promise that comes at the end of verse 5 is possible if you have the ESV that's what we were reading today it says he speaking of 
the warrior who has the, the arrows, he, the parent, will not be put to shame as he engages with his enemies at the gate. If you have the New International Version, it says they, your children, will not be put to shame as they engage their enemies in society. This is one of those very few places in the Bible where the actual Hebrew word, we're not sure which is the right one there. The point is true either way. Our children will not be put to shame if they're released to serve God and as parents we will not be put to shame if our children are released to serve God. And a brief note before ending. This is not a sermon just for parents. I think you've got that by now. This is for grandparents and aunts and uncles and teachers and coaches and friends and anyone who has contact with our next generation. Let us raise them in such a way that they follow God. Dear God, we thank you for that promise and that word. Help us to apply it. Amen. We're going to switch gears and go right into communion. And communion is going to take a little longer today because we're going to make this a teaching time for parents and children for the benefit of all of us. How many of you remember when you were a child and that communion plate got passed down and your parents, I mean my parents, you can't take that. And why? I don't, I, my parents explained to me about communion. The best passage for that is probably 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Please listen to God's word. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Parents, are you able to use that passage to explain the gospel to your children? Are you able to explain to them communion, why we take of it together? Are you able to explain that Jesus died for their sins and that is what we celebrate? I'm going to ask that if you've never had that conversation with your children, you have it today. But don't stop there. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Well, what's that? To partake of communion in an unworthy manner. We talked about this in our men's Bible study on Wednesday nights. We said if you take of communion and you're not a believer, that's partaking in an unworthy manner. Parents, teach your children. Communion is for believers. We decided that if one partakes of communion flippantly, distractedly, jokingly, without thought, that would be partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. We also talked about how as I come before the Lord in communion now, if I have known an unconfessed sin in my life, blocking my communion with the Father, 
not hindering my salvation, but blocking my relationship. That's partaking in an unworthy manner. Notice the next verse says, so let a person examine himself. Every time we take communion, Paul's recommendation is we should stop and we should examine ourselves. And that's why before communion, we always say, stop and prayerfully consider your heart before God. When I examine myself, I make sure that I'm focusing on what I should be focusing on. Now, let's be honest. What have we been focusing on mostly for the last 18 months? How to get a little plastic lid off of a little plastic cup. And that's really sad. I mean, I understand the need for this at this time, but make sure you're examining your right things. Am I thinking about what Christ did for me? My appropriate response to him may be one of praise, it may be one of confession, it may be one of silence. It may be one of exuberant thanksgiving, it may be one of awe. In the next verse, Parents, don't ignore this when you're teaching them. Shows just how serious Paul is about this because he says it's possible to eat and drink without discernment and to do that is to eat and drink judgment on yourselves. And then it says this, this is why many, many are weak and ill and some have died. Do you get the feeling that God wants us to take communion seriously? I do. So I'm going to ask that we take a moment of silence to prepare ourselves now for communion. And I'm going to ask that we do what this passage says. We examine ourselves before we take together. Let's pray. Dear God, for the gift of your body and your blood, we give you thanks for the gift of eternal life that we have through your Son. We give you thanks for allowing us to be your children. We thank you and for allowing us as a community to remember that we're in awe of you. Thank you for that. Amen. So on the night that Jesus died, he did take bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And when they all had it, he said, take eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Let's partake together. And in the same way also, he took the cup that this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. 
If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.